Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Judith Sachs, and I am the Chief Academic Officer from uh, Studiosity. Today is our second symposium titled Beyond Borders Towards a Shared Student Experience, and it's one of our students' first symposia. Before beginning, I want to acknowledge that I am hosting this online conversation from the lands of the Camaragal people. I also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands on which you all work today and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people participating in this meeting. I pay my respects to elders past and present and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal peoples and their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of New South Wales and elsewhere in Australia and overseas. So today's symposium is about uh, new thinking for transnational teaching and learning experience. In this uh, session, panelists will explore, ex explore strategies and practices for belonging, integrity and success for a transnational student cohort and how these issues are changing into 2024 and beyond. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to invite members of the panel to introduce themselves and to talk uh, briefly about the expertise that they bring to today's session. So if I can start by asking Professor Lindley Lord. Uh, thank you, Judith, and good afternoon, uh, everyone. And can I also pay my respects to First Nations people and acknowledge that uh, as university, we operate on the lands of many First Nations people and have many students who come from First Nations. And so I pay my respects to them and their elders. Um, so my name's Lindley Lord. Um, I'm the Pro Vice-Chancellor and President at Curtin Singapore. I've uh, been here in Singapore um, just over five years now in this role. Curtin itself has been in Singapore over 30 years. We've had a dedicated campus here for 15 years, had our campus in Malaysia for some 20 years. We've also got a campus in Mauritius and a campus in Dubai. So we sit around that Indian Ocean rim. And prior to coming up uh, to Singapore to take up this role, um, I chaired Curtin's academic board for uh, six years. So that gave me a really good understanding of uh, the complexity um, in which we operate. Um, I've got a much better understanding of that, that now that I sit in Singapore and see uh, how that plays out on a day-to-day -day basis. So I'm looking forward to sharing that as part of the discussion. So thank you, Judith. Beverly, could I invite you to introduce yourself, please? Yes, thank you, Judith. And hello, everyone. Welcome to this symposium. It's certainly wonderful to be here. Uh, my name's Beverly Webster. I'm currently the Vice President Education at Monash University in Malaysia. So I'm joining you today from a very hot Kuala Lumpur. Um, I, I think everyone will know that Monash is a global university. We have um, the campus here in Malaysia in Kuala Lumpur, which is actually Monash's um, third largest campus. Um, Monash has three campuses actually in Australia, but we also have a presence in Italy. We have a presence in uh, India, um, a partnership in India, in China, and more recently we've opened up a campus in Indonesia. So definitely a global university. Um, I've got previous experience at RMIT. I was located in Vietnam another global university with a presence in a number of different locations around the world. So this, this topic obviously is important to my portfolio and I'm looking forward to the discussion with you all. Thank you. And Alex? Yes, uh, can I also acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which I am meeting you? Um, um, I'm, hello, Alex Frino. Uh, I'm the Senior Deputy Vice-Chancellor at the University of Wollongong. Uh, previously, I was the Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Global Strategy. Um, the University and oversaw our offshore operations and the internationalization of the University of Wollongong. Uh, the University of Wollongong has campuses in, um, in Dubai, Malaysia and Hong Kong, and a very significant partnership uh, with uh, the Singapore uh, Institute of Management in Singapore. Um, We've, we were the first foreign university to open a campus in Dubai um, 30 years ago, um, and uh, hopefully we will soon be the first foreign university to open a campus, uh, a branch campus in India 
uh, we've just been awarded a license um, uh, in India to open. Um, so happy to be at this conference and happy to share my experiences over the last seven years in these portfolios with you. Thanks, Alex. So the first question that I've got, and I think I'll just uh, randomly ask people if they could start. So Beverly, I'm going to randomly ask you if you'd like to contribute, then I'll get Alex to answer then finally, Lindley. Um, what does transnational education mean in the context in which you are working? And what are the benefits and risks of investment in transnational education? Thanks, Judith. So, you know, I, I shared that Monash is a global university and um, with that are uh, the mobility opportunities for all of our students. And it is important, it's embedded in our strategy that as a Monash student, you will and can have an opportunity to um, have a mobility experience, to have an intercultural and immersion experience. We, we've got a variety of mobility programs that students can access, which can take them to many different parts of the world, either at another Monash campus or in another location with a, a T&E partner. And we have many, many of those. So we're not just restricted to our students going to another Monash campus. Um, it's important. It certainly helps us diversify our international strategy. Um, and it's to ensure that our students, but not just our students, but staff, our research and our programs um, of study are attuned to the needs of an increasingly globalised economy, and a globalised workforce. Um, of course, you know, it helps us generate some additional revenue, but that's not the priority there. Um, it's an extension of our mission to increase participation as well. Um, it's T&E is certainly our main strategy for student mobility um, and providing a suite of options from short-term intensives to um, um, immersive experiences. Um, some of the risks, I think, when we're looking at expanding and offering mobility at scale, uh, we do risk marginalising certain cohorts of students. And so we're working very closely on how our systems and our, our, our strategy to offer these opportunities for our students don't marginalise. Um, for example, we can't have these opportunities based on cost because we know that if, 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 if money is, is a, money will be a barrier to a certain cohort of students. Also, there are certain cohorts of students which would not naturally choose a mobility option. So, so whilst we are doing very, very well in this space, um, our next effort is to make sure that we are genuine in our promise that if you come to Monash, you can have a mobility option. Do you also recruit students in Malaysia for Malaysia? Yes, we do. In fact, 72% of our student cohort are local Malaysian students. Okay, thank you. Lindley. Uh, thanks. Thanks, Judith. And, and very, a lot of similar things to, to what Beverly was talking about. One of the, uh, what does it mean for us? Um, it means that we can take education to where the students are. So those campus locations are providing opportunities for students who either choose not to come to study in Australia or can't come to study in Australia. And that can be around some financial uh, constraints. Sometimes it's around where the parents want, want their, their kids to be studying closer to home in places that they consider to be culturally safe. So there's a, a mix of motivations there. But it is around taking education um, to where uh, students are. But it also helps us to build networks um, with the universities that are in the region, with businesses in the region. Obviously, um, in Singapore, it's a financial hub. There's lots of uh, the multinationals have got their Asia-Pac headquarters here. It gives us access to um, those organisations that we just don't get in Australia, we don't get in Perth. So that opens up opportunities for students in terms of their career opportunities for the staff around, uh, around research. So in terms of some of the, the risks around um, transnational education, obviously the quality of the learning experience, uh, we're a smaller campus, all of our 
our global campuses are all smaller than the main campus in, in Perth. So we don't have necessarily that breadth and depth of uh, resources available. So how do we ensure the equivalence of experience for the students without it becoming vanilla? I'm very strong that students need to know that they're in Singapore. They're at an Australian university, they're at Curtin, but they're in Singapore. And so don't want it to be vanilla. Um, just the challenge of accreditation requirements, working across different jurisdictions um, and with accreditation bodies for some of the courses who don't want to recognise when a course is being offered in a location other than Australia. That's a real um, challenge. And then those issues around being culturally sensitive around curriculum and what can and can't be taught in certain locations because it's against the law. Um, and what does that mean around issues of academic freedom and, um, and really the transformational power of education? But how do you ensure that you keep staff and students safe? So, you know, there's some of the, I guess, challenges and, and risks. The other thing is it's highly competitive market. We've all just talked about where all our campuses are located and new campuses that are opening. Um, and that's just three of us on the screen. So there's a lot of activity that's happening in that space. And so how do we maintain the integrity of what we're offering, I think, as some of the, the, the risks around uh, expanding too quickly or spreading ourselves too thinly? Thanks. Thank you. And Alex? Yeah, well, one of the uh, we, um, problems with going last is everyone steals the available thunder. But anyway, um, agree totally with Beverly and Lindy's uh, views of the benefits and risks of um, of operating uh, offshore campuses. If I could just add a couple. Um, so uh, offshore brand recognition is uh, is really given a boost uh, through operating offshore. We, we've experienced that in Dubai. And if I could just give you a funny anecdote, in Dubai, you can swim at Wollongong Beach. Google it. Go on. Um, that's that's the kind of relationship you can build if you're in a place long enough um, and people get to know you. Uh, you the visibility of your institution uh, is, is raised dramatically. So we travel really, really well in the Middle East. Global student mobility, which I love and I think is important for developing the, the global mindset of students and, and uh, future leaders, um, we we launched a program, a pilot program, a couple of years ago, where we figured out we've got offshore campuses teaching the degrees that we teach in Australia. So why not allow students the opportunity of studying their entire degree uh, cycling through our offshore campuses? So uh, we launched what became known as a Global Leaders Program. Uh, and essentially, uh, you could take a Bachelor of Commerce, you do your first year in Australia, six months in um, next port of call was Hong Kong six months in Malaysia, six months in Dubai, home for your honours. So, uh, and whilst it, it started as a small pilot program, it's proved very, very um, attractive, but that's the kind of um, global mobility opportunity you can open up for your students and really look after them as they're moving through uh, your offshore campuses. And if, if your campuses are organised neatly and streamlined, um, it's very easy for them to slip into the routine of study, but experience the culture uh, that the offshore location has to offer. Um, risks, uh, perhaps worth highlighting, yeah, um, perhaps worth highlighting that geopolitical risks are, you know, well and truly uh, present uh, when you operate offshore. Um, without going into names, uh, uh, if, if, uh, to, if the Australian government and another government doesn't get on, um, that can have repercussions for your ability to grow staff offshore or indeed, uh, you know, we worry about um, some of our staff operating in offshore locations from time to time as different threats uh, threats originate. And so you really, in operating an offshore campus, you really have to have your risk management brain on, switched on all the time and be tuned into ever-present and emanating risks uh, with plans for how you can um, deal with them um, uh, as they emerge and create problems. So um, I think, uh, yeah, they're, they're kind of just a couple of ideas around benefits and risks. So we've got 120 years of history, practically, oh no, 90 years of history in the combined work of the three universities uh, doing this transnational education. 
What do you think the big lessons are that you've learned about transnational education from that beginning 30 years ago, both in uh, Curtin and um, in uh, Dubai? And Curtin, does Curtin still have the Sarawak campus as well? Right, so that's that's been going a long time too. So what's what's the sort of story you tell in your institutions about transnational education and your organisation and how it's part of your DNA now? And I'm not going to uh, nominate anybody, so somebody can jump in first. Yeah, I, I'm happy to uh, contribute. Um, th there's there's kind of a notion. It's not just a, a branch campus can can be thought of as part of a, a an economic construct that that corporations that have um, branches overseas face all the time, um, and. You, you can develop a mindset that, um, you know, knowledge and the way of doing things goes from your mothership down to your branch campuses. Um, and one of the, the really pleasant things that uh, I've seen over time, over the last seven years that I've been at the University of Wollongong, is creating a more integrated whole uh, and understanding that, um, that uh, there's all kinds of interesting um, ideas that emanate uh, in the way of doing things and research, so uh, and building a research culture uh, at our offshore locations that can benefit um, uh, Australia. So, if I was going to highlight a, a an idea um, uh, at, at the University of Wollongong, we we realised uh, five years ago that you know we've got the Australian Research Council in Australia, but we've got similar like bodies uh, in other locations, um, and so teams of academics could get together uh, and apply for research funding uh, in all of those locations, not just in uh, Australia. Uh, and you could be quite inclusive and, and put together really interesting teams. So there's, there's all kinds of uh, opportunities and possibilities that open themselves up. If you can get over the hurdle that, you know, everything doesn't go from the mothership to the branch campus, but there's enormous benefits from um, bringing everyone in and and uh, together. Judith, I'm happy to add to that. And Alex, I agree with the with what you've said. And certainly from the curtain point of view, has been the shift. That, I guess the story that we tell is the shift from that focus on teaching, that the campuses were there as as teaching machines, um, in effect, to really um, a mindset about being a campus. So we now talk about them being comprehensive campuses, not in terms of delivering everything, but we teach, we research, we engage with industry, we engage with the community. And so there's now that expectation across all of the campuses, um, like Alex was saying, that we're contributing to, uh, say, research outcomes. But that's often increasingly we're seeing that our colleagues from Australia are coming to us and saying, oh, there's really exciting things happening in your part of the world. Can you connect us up? Can we work with you to work with those people? And a fantastic um, uh, example for students was uh, through some work that we're doing in the uh, health area, um, data science students coming up, uh, working in one of the hospitals here in the rare diseases area. Um, short-term projects, absolutely phenomenal outcomes for the students, life-changing for them, but their work actually made a real difference. One of the things that really enabled that was our presence on the ground here because it meant that the who we were working with, the partners, knew that we were serious and it's that what Alex was talking about, having that presence, having that visibility, people knowing who you are, and Curtin must be serious about relationships if they've got feet on the ground here um, and in, in the other locations. So I think, you know, those things, that's the story that is, uh, you know, the story for Curtin. The other thing that we're doing is running a global leadership program. We developed that. Uh, we'll run it for the third time this year. And that's around people understanding what it means to work in a global um, university and bringing people together from the campuses, from our strategic partners, um, at a, a sort of a middle level, um, and 
even talking to each other and finding out, wow, there's so much to learn about what's happening in our global locations. I want to be part of it. So that's, I think, another development that says it's not the mothership delivering to the campuses, it's the partnership across all of them. And that's a real shift for us. Mm, yes, I can, I, I absolutely um, concur with what Alex and Lindley have said. And I can continue on that theme. Monash has been in Malaysia 25 years this year. So a long time. And, you know, 25 years ago, it's, you know, Alex mentioned the, the mothership, the curriculum coming up from the mothership, and that's exactly what happened. And it did take a while for, for the campus here to mature. Um, it, but I think more importantly than the campus here in Malaysia maturing, it took even longer for uh, Monash in Australia to acknowledge that there was expertise and authority in Malaysia um, and then being, it's, we're an Australian university with, you know, Australian um, licensed degrees, but we also are licensed in Malaysia. And it's taken a long time for the curriculum to be nuanced and for the, the mindset to allow the curriculum to be nuanced, given that we are in another country. So in relation to teaching and learning, um, we are now at a point where you know, uh, our students know that they're at an Australian university, but they're studying in Malaysia, similar to what Lindley said about um, being in Singapore. And, and the other part of the story about being in another country is that when we look at research, um, we are wanting our primary objective is to engage in research that's beneficial to the Asian region. So working with industry, working with government, working with local community <clears throat> on helping them identify and solve problems. Um, and that's really important. <clears throat> it's, not, it's not good enough for us just to say, we are graduating people into your community. We need to do more. And I believe it's taken... Um, a significant amount of time to get to that place where we actually are now, we well, have been well recognised as, as a higher education institute, but we're also well recognised as a, as a genuine partner in, with the Malaysian community in helping them to solve problems. Can I pick up on two things and two separate questions? And given that Beverly's just mentioned partnership and partnership is fundamental to your being successful, what, what will enable a positive and effective partnership between uh, an Australian-based university and uh, a transnational campus? And Beverly, can I just uh, ask you to answer the question first? Or yes, definitely, definitely. So your question is what, what will make a successful partnership with, um, I'm, I think yeah. I heard you say, basically the mothership and, and yeah. the campus. And how do you yeah. spend it? And what are the politics that you need to acknowledge? <laughs> how long have we got? <laughs> politics. Um, I, well, I've been at Monash for nearly three, well, just over three years now. Um, and I'm very fortunate I came into the university when that relationship was very mature. Um, still pockets of, you know, we're the boss down here, you're, you're you know, you, you do what we say up there. But the key to a successful partnership is, is, Acknowledgement of expertise, where there is expertise, and acknowledgement that we're in partnership, we need to work, whether it's research or whether it's curriculum, teaching and learning, we need to work collaboratively on this. Um, there, because of, you know, governance, there's always a, a owning, if we're talking about degrees, there's an owning faculty. We don't have faculties in Malaysia, we have schools, but that mutual respect and until you have that mutual respect, that acknowledgement that there is expertise in both locations, not all the expertise is at the home campus, um, then that's when you will get a successful partnership. Of course, you do need systems to facilitate that. You need to have members from different locations on committees, on working groups. Um, I'm sure that in the earlier days, Every member of every committee and working group was from the home campus. And so you, you need to make sure that you have some enabling processes to facilitate that collaboration and that mutual partnership. And so there's reciprocity? 
definitely reciprocity yes i mean it, it it's never going to work if if the the voice is only coming from the home campus and i think the other thing judith if i could add to that one of the things um is also being prepared so from if i speak from my role here of continuing to remind um the Perth campus around about global campuses and so when discussion is happening which would make perfect sense in the Australian context but I know is going to be problematic reminding uh reminding them that that won't work in Singapore or that won't work in one of our other locations and and so it is part of that people starting to understand the context the other thing that's made a real difference is really um you know put aside the pandemic, but people coming and spending time on the campus. And that's a real game changer because then they, it speaks to what Beverly was talking about. They go like, wow, you've got some great systems here. You do that really well. Could you share that with others? I didn't know you were doing that. So telling the story of what's happening on the campus, um, because it can be a little bit out of sight, out of mind. And you spoke about politics. So at time that can, that can be really terrific you can just get things done and ask for forgiveness later so you know there are some advantages um but the understanding you know what what we're doing here has been a real game changer and so now I hear people telling our story not just me telling the story and so that equalizes that partnership Alex what have you got to add yeah um agree with uh Beverly and Lindley who who highlighted especially the need to remind colleagues when they drive to work, for example, at Wollongong, that there's, you know, there's a lot beyond Wollongong in terms of the University of Wollongong. Um, but th I think that's just human nature. But um, I think the most important bit is if you have an inclusive culture um, within a, a university, um, then uh, that, that would drive you to include everyone at, at your offshore campuses. So um, pleasantly, we've, um, yeah, it, it hasn't been uh, all, all roses, but uh, we've, we've managed to get um, offshore staff onto most committees that run in Wollongong so that they get visibility. Uh, yeah. the, the offshore campuses get continually, uh, there's continual visibility of what, what's happening at uh, the offshore campuses. Um, uh, the notion of ownership uh, of degrees, yeah, I, I mean that, you know, with ownership comes, you know, revenue allocation uh, sometimes. Uh, the interesting model we have uh, at our Dubai campus is um, students, uh, the degrees they complete um, qualify uh, to be recognised both in the UAE and Australia. The student opts for one or the other at the end of their degree. Um, that, that's, that's kind of interesting. Um, it, it just changes the the equation a little in, in terms of how you deal with the offshore campus. I really like that. And we're seeking to do that at some of our off, uh, other offshore campuses. Um, but I think, I think the key is an inclusive culture. Uh, as long as that exists, that drives people to include everyone, uh, no matter where they are in, in the world. Um, Lindley, you talked about culturally sensitive curriculum. And so that, that means that there, have to, there has to be some translation, local translation, to make sure that that cultural sensitivity and that recognition of different ways of thinking, acting and being are taken into account. Mm. How do you do that? Well, I think, it, I think it's around having that sensitivity and it's around the getting involved in curriculum development. So whilst we are required by our regulator to take the curriculum from Perth, we're not allowed to develop it ourselves. Um, but that doesn't mean we can't be involved in the development because one of the risks is we'll add an international case study and stir and say that we've internationalised the curriculum. And, of course, that just doesn't do anything. We do get complaints from our students here if all of the case studies are around organisations in Australia because they say, yeah, that's fine, but... I want to know what's happening in the region. So, so there's just the actual material that you're asking them to, to look at, I think is really important. The other thing is 
drawing on that expertise of the staff that we've got here who live and work in this area. Most of our people are are industry experienced. So bringing that into the uh, making the the theory live in terms of what happens in in the region is really important. Then there's, um, I guess, the the, the, uh, more challenging area of um, in some of our locations, talking, for example, around LGBTQ um, issues is actually illegal. Um, And so some of our courses have got that material in them. What do we do um, in those situations? Uh, And, of course, there's always the two arguments. It's an Australian degree. We should be able to deliver it. Um, But there's a legal framework that we're operating within that says uh, you can't talk about these things and people are put at risk. Uh, serious risk if they do. So that's the other challenge is how do you then deliver the learning outcomes that you're trying to deliver through those courses um, in different ways? Are there a different way to approach it? And that causes some some real tension. So some of it's very simple, bring groups together from across the network to develop curriculum that truly does have a global outlook um, that has more than a Singapore perspective because we can draw um, not only our campuses but our partnerships. And then what do we do about those really sensitive areas um, and not just take the easy way out? So, well, we just won't teach that course there. How do we provide that opportunity for students um, in those locations in a safe, safe way? Beverly, do you want to make some comments or Alex about that uh, conundrum? Really, it's and it's it's a, a risk. It's a risk factor that is very real. It is. It is a very very real risk. Um, and you know, everyone will be aware of the laws in Malaysia. But you know, we we're an Australian university, but we have a social contract to the country that we're we're in. Um, and it it is a balancing act um, in our curriculum. But beyond our curriculum, even the in the experiences that 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 students and staff will have when they're actually on this campus, and we have to find a way to make it a very safe space um, for staff and students. We do, you know, um, access, equity, and diversity is a huge agenda for Monash as a university, mm-hmm. as it is for most universities. Um, and and we have, you know, diversity weeks. We have activities. Um, but they are and unfortunately have to be confined to campus. Um, we are, would not, so one of, so a, a restriction is that we would not be able to and we wouldn't want to because of the social contract we have with the country, be able to organise an event outside of the campus. Um, that's just the, sort of the, the a compromise that we need to make. So we are providing our university community with those experiences um, but we are confined to where we can um, hold those types of events. Um, I mean, and, and, you know, when we talk about sort of mobility, it's not just when our students are here in Malaysia, but obviously we send students out to different locations mm-hmm. and it's beholden on us to be um, um, cognizant of, of what, what, what is going to keep them safe in those different locations, what they need to do, what, what they need to be aware of. Um, so there are some limitations depending on the country that you are operating in. Alex, and you'd have some limitations in um, Dubai as well. And Hong, and Hong Kong, when you think about it. I mean, in Australia, we've got this, um, you know, tradition and mindset that it's okay to criticise a government and make all kinds of comments um, uh, that, that aren't exactly flattering. Um, but um, there's jurisdictions in which you can be... Uh, summarily arrested um uh, so it it's something that we're very mindful of uh we need to keep our staff safe uh and and uh like beverly um uh, for example the global leader students we put them through a culturalization experience uh before they uh attend a location uh, just to make sure they don't do things that are uh you know young people young kids that's what they are uh, would do and may get them into trouble, but it's it's it is a very significant risk and one that uh, uh, is always uh, at the back of my mind, the front of my mind actually. 
Alex, there's a question that's been asked specifically to you. And can I invite people in the audience to pose some questions because, um, you know, it's, it's, these are become enriched with your questions. So Alex, your question is, um, you mentioned that students can decide whether they want to have their degree awarded as an Australian or a UAE centered one. Um, yep. Have any idea of the proportion that would choose to study in the UI University of Wollongong Dubai campus and choose to have a degree awarded as an Australian? And do you know whether there is any correlation with whether the student might want to do their postgraduate studies directly in Australia or afterwards, or work in Australia afterwards? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. You've hit the nail right on the head. Uh, it's about 30% uh, that choose to take out a UAE qualification. Uh, so the, the, the majority uh, take out uh, an Australian qualification. Uh, the UAE is an interesting place. Uh, so Emirati, uh, you know, the natives of uh, the UAE are very small in number, uh, 400,000 or so in a country of four or five odd million. Um, uh, and, and opportunities to work in government are therefore uh, smaller, uh, but they do exist. Um, and so that's, that's a pretty important driver for a student. It doesn't really matter whether they take out a UAE qualification or an Australian qualification. If they want to go on to further postgrad study, um, there's similar openness uh, in Australia to take them on. It's more about uh, whether that degree they, or qualification they take out opens up an opportunity uh, that, that they couldn't otherwise open up with, with one from another jurisdiction, which is typically government related. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, did I answer all the questions? Or, yeah, uh, I, think, I think pretty much. Yeah. 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 Look, students are at the heart of what happens in any university on any campus. But I think the idea of inclusiveness, belonging and well-being is a challenge uh, to all people in senior positions. So, Beverly, can I just get you to start off? How do you create a sense of belonging and well-being uh, in in a campus like uh, the Singapore campus, or oh, sorry, the Malaysian campus. Malaysian campus, yeah, that's a it's a really good question, and it's a really important um, area for discussion. Um, it really has to be part of the fabric of the way that you accept how you're operating and accept how your staff and your students are having the experiences that they have with you. Um, it needs to be in your strategy. It needs to be in your plans. It can't be something that you hope will happen by osmosis or by some nice conversations or some posters put around campus. Um, it, it, it actually has to be um, in, in every part of the experience. It needs to, I mean, first of all, we you know, we we believe in inclusiveness, we believe in access. So we are at the front door accepting a whole group of students who come from a whole different range of backgrounds, be it cultural backgrounds, be it, um, you know, academic backgrounds, um, and we accept them in, thank goodness, happily, you know, gone are the days where it's only the high achievers that go to university. And so, um, it's 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 on us to make sure that once they come through that front door, that there are support systems, regardless of their pathway into university. Um, and those support systems need to be around different cultures, needs to be around different academic abilities, needs to be around different, um, I, I guess, mental states as well. Um, mm -hmm. So we 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 need to to ensure that the the systems we have, the supports that are there for all of these different cohorts of students um, so that they do feel included. I don't think we've got that right. <laughs> I think there's still a long way to go in relation to that. I, particularly if I think of the learning and teaching space, I think we've got a fair way to go to have our um, workforce really understand what it means to have to be educating a diverse cohort of students. Um, I think we've got a long way to go to get our educators to accept that they are not educating people who will take their jobs, who will replace them. Um, that's the minority. Um, we, 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 we really need to, I, I feel, turn the dial on where we're, our focus is on all of our students, but I still feel that in a lot of areas, our focus is on our high-performing students. Um, we need to turn the dial and make sure that our 
our support mechanisms and the way that our students are experiencing their education um, is inclusive and they don't feel that they're sort of the odd one out, that they're left out, that this is too much for them. I'm, I'm still seeing what I would consider disturbing numbers of students in first year failing. I don't think there, we should have hardly any students in first year failing. So, so we've, got, we've got work to do and around an inclusive education for a diverse cohort of students. And does that mean providing sort of extra support, sort of academic scaff scaffolding and things like that? It, it does, it does. It means providing um, a suite of different types of support because our students are diverse. And it's about providing support to get students to a stage where, I mean, there will always be um, a distribution of students' abilities, definitely, but we need to have the support for the different cohorts of student in the areas that they need it. And we know what that are. We know what those are. You know, there's sort of academic support, there's um, wellbeing support, we, there's language support, um, but we need to have those in place. And we also need students to feel comfortable accessing that support because that's another issue is that often students' help-seeking behaviour is, is not as proactive as it should be. So, and, and again, I think we could probably do better in our messaging and our communication about the support that's available. And it's not, it's, it's not shameful to seek support. Uh, Lindley or, or Alex, do you want to make a comment about student wellbeing and belonging? Um, I agree in terms of, I think one of the challenges is understanding the cultural differences around how you, what you report, um, how you access services, um, and that we really do need to understand that. The expectations around learning, and that's not just from the students. Um, we've also, we get complaints from the parents that there are no final exams and why are we just giving their uh, child homework to do, which is the continuous assessment, um, and, and not how can they be learning if there's no final exam? So being clear around what the learning processes now look like, uh, both for students and for uh, um, their parents. And just recognising that, you know, for many of our students, English might be their third language, not their second language, their third language. And we don't privilege that. We, we're often very critical that their English isn't good enough um, and they're actually operating and thinking in three languages or more. How do we start to privilege um, that ability, um, particularly from an Australian context where, um, myself included, not a lot of people speak multiple languages um, and think in multiple languages, which is just an amazing skill. So I think, you know, those challenges around just understanding that context and privileging it rather than it being a deficit model. Oh, they don't ask for help. Oh, they don't do this. They don't do that. What do they do and what can we do um, that actually meets students where they where they are. So I'll just leave it there and hand over to Alex. Yeah, um, we we did uh, an interesting experiment uh, at the University of Wollongong um, to just kind of broaden the minds of the academic staff that were teaching um, offshore. Um, so we we teach finance one and accounting one in every location um, that, that we're in. But we brought them together to teach as a unified group across the entire diversity of, of the crowd. And I think I, I saw all kinds of gains from doing that, including in terms of labour and cost savings. But um, the one benefit that I didn't appreciate was the academics learned deal with teaching to very, very diverse groups because Australians have very different demands uh, to groups of students in, in Malaysia or, or um, well, in Malaysia, for example. Um, uh, so, so, yeah, I think, it, you know, educating your, your staff and those that are dealing with students uh, on the importance of student wellbeing uh, and belonging and how that can enhance the learning experience is fundamental. 
Um, and so figuring out ways that you can broaden the minds of your staff teaching wherever they are, uh, I think is, is, is really important. Look, can I just ask the people who are listening to this to put their questions in the chat part rather than the Q&A part, because it's easier for me to see the chat and the Q&A and bring those together than look across a number of screens. But Peter Waring's got a question, and I, I don't know who, who can answer this. And uh, so I'll put it out there. Why do Australian universities lag UK universities in the TNX space? And what can be done? What, what can we do as an Australian sector to compete effectively? So the Brits, many universities have successful campuses or even in some cases, unsuccessful campuses. So how do you define success in terms of a transnational project? And what do we as a country need to do to support transnational education? I think that sounds like that's for you, Alex. It's, a big, it's a big, <laughs> a big, hi, Peter. Um, uh, that's a big question. Um, uh, look, I, I don't agree that, um, that UK universities are ahead of the game uh, relative to Australia. Um, I think there's, there's pockets of excellence, uh, including my colleagues uh, around the table here today, uh, that, that uh, operate offshore in a very effective uh, way. Um, but there's always room for improvement, no matter where you are. Um, um, uh, but I, I might let uh, some of my other colleagues address that one. I think we're um, fighting. Yeah. I, <laughs> look, what I would um, add to that is one of the things I, in terms of what could we do differently or better, in my view, is around Brand Australia. Australian education is well-respected. Um, and well respected internationally. I'm not sure that we always capitalise on that. I think we're getting better at it. But for me, one of the things that could make a difference in terms of just raising the profile of Australian uh, universities in, in all of their locations is that real focus on the quality of Australian education wherever you you get it um, and then obviously you know at an individual level we'll all compete fiercely with each other and then collaborate when uh, when uh, that works as well as as we do now but you know if I if I think about what I see here um, in Singapore I don't see as much of that um, as I think we could do that would make a difference mm, and I think there are more universities in the UK, so proportionately that might not hold. But I, I, I would just add to that as well, and I'll just mention Malaysia. Yes, there are a lot of UK universities represented in Malaysia, um, very good universities represented in Malaysia, and, you know, I collaborate with a number of staff at those universities. But Monash has been here for 25 years. Curtin has been in Malaysia for a long time as well, and they're very solid very, very solid, um, large numbers of students. So whilst there may be a lot of um, UK universities represented, um, they're not necessarily large cohorts of students. Um, certainly they're offering quality education, but I go to what Lindley said, the, the Australian brand is very, very strong. Australian education is very strong. And I often think about, uh, you know, regulators, it's like we we... And, and in Singapore, Lindley will be the same. And in your many locations, Alex, is you're kind of double regulated. So you've got double <laughs> quality, um, which is true for any um, campus that's not in its home location. Uh, but, but I think it's, it's a matter of maybe quality, not so much quantity. <laughs> uh, Nima's put a very interesting point here. Um, and... Uh, She's noted that perspectives here are all from perspectives of those from Australian education backgrounds. Any thoughts on what your colleagues in host locations who are born and raised in these locations uh, would say about the sense of belonging your students have, have compared to those going to a local university in inverted commas? I love this well, question. So do I. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And it, at Monash here in Malaysia, we have... Um, 
We have staff from about 70 different countries, but the majority of our staff are lo from local Malaysia. And our student body, as I said earlier, 72% of our students are from Malaysia, so local students. Um, I don't have any, we don't have a barometer, we haven't done a survey um, at, at to, to this point in time, but when I work with staff um, and when I look at the student activity. So I'm surprised you can't hear it, but underneath me in the foyer, there's the student activities rife, there's music, there's all sorts of things. So my observation, and it is just an observation, is that there is a sense of belonging to Monash. I mean, our students are very, very proud to come to Monash. Um, you know, their parents are paying a lot of money to send them to Monash, but they are very proud to be coming to Monash. That we do know. And, and staff local Malaysian staff definitely choose to work at Monash. It's considered quite a good job. I don't want to use the word prestigious, but that is what it's considered. Mm. Um, do they feel more of a sense of belonging than students who are going to local universities? I can't really say, but I can confidently say that there is definitely a sense of, of belonging to Monash as a university by what I see in, in relation to the, the extent of the engagement with university activities. So that's students. What about staff? Staff who are locally educated uh, and locally recruited. What, what's, what, what's that like? Because that, that was the sense that I got from Nima's question. Oh, right. Well, at Monash, and it may be different um, in Singapore, but a lot of our staff are Monash alumni. We see, we, I don't know, it's not actually written on the selection criteria, but we have, we have quite a large number of local staff who are Monash alumni. Um, but of course, we do have, have a lot of staff who have gone to local universities. Um, but I think with staff, because staff choose to work here, no one's forcing them to work here. So they've chosen to work here for a variety of reasons. Um, so I, I, I think that we could confidently say that they, they do feel that they belong to Monash. Um, we get a number of staff who work here and their objective is to transition to Monash in Australia and we have a lot of staff that do that. Um, on the one hand, it's good for their career. On the other hand, we're sad to see them go. Um, so, so that is sort of an in, another indicator that staff um, feel mm -hmm. connected to Monash. So oh, I, if, if I could just add to that, because I think Beverly's hit the nail right on the head. Um, where are Australian universities operating in these different locations? And there's something, there is something peculiar about uh, Australians, Australian universities, Australian culture, and staff that choose to come to us want that. And by the same token, so do students, because they're selecting to come to, uh, uh, you, you know, an Australian university operating offshore um, rather than going to uh, a, a domestic, yeah. So the, the self-selection uh, is part of the uniqueness, uh, is a result of part of the uniqueness of our offering. So I think we need to bear that in mind. We're, we're not, we're not, I don't think we're trying to duplicate uh, or repeat uh, what the others do, but we, we do want to keep the integrity of, uh, of our culture uh, and the way we do things um, uh, to a certain extent, uh, while whilst respecting the local culture and norms, of course. Uh, as we operate offshore. Lily? Uh, look, I agree with, with everything that's said. We're similar. Most of our staff, uh, nearly all of our staff are Singaporean, um, choosing to work uh, with us. Um, a lot of them have got connections to Australia, um, either have studied in Australia, not necessarily with us, um, but have or have got family members who studied in Australia. There's a really strong relationship between Singapore and Australia, particularly through the Colombo Plan. Um, and, and so a lot of respect for Australian universities. So therefore coming to work for us. Sometimes it's just, you know, the national universities here in Singapore, highly competitive. Um, they are machines in terms of, of uh, what the uh, academic staff are required to do. And some people go, yeah, a little bit more balance in life uh, might be a good option, so we we can offer that uh, you know slightly more balance. We still get them to do lots of marking, so I don't know that we've uh, quite got that uh, down pat. But it is around that choice, and it is around um, pride in working for a highly respected 
university and that would be for for all of us and that is that brand australia um it, there's there's just you're working somewhere where quality is assured and so that gives people great pride in the work they do the other thing around a sense of belonging is really finding those opportunities to connect staff in as we've talked earlier through committees through working parties through research projects so they're part of the the larger organization and that's not just our Perth campus, but across across our global network. One of the issues when I was in senior positions in universities was we did recruit a lot of students to Australian universities. We had lots of international students, mm -hmm. but we never used them as a cultural resource. There wasn't that sense of reciprocity. And as a consequence, many of these students were um, siloed into, you know, the groups of their, their fellow students. And I still remember when I was provost at Macquarie, I heard a student say, I didn't ever have to speak English at Macquarie. And mm -hmm. that to me was really devastating as an educator. How can, we, how can we use international students as a cultural, social, political resource? And in many respects, the, old, the original Colombo plan did provide outstanding links for people who are now in senior positions to, you know, maintain those relationships. But how can we, when it's a massified international education project, how can we see these students as a cultural resource for both the university but the broader community? Yeah, it's a tough question, um, Judith, because, I, and I agree with you, we don't use them as a cultural um, resource, I think, there's sometimes a deficit model that these students, that the international students are um, not as good as, or, and that's often around language proficiency um, in English. Um, obviously, the proficiency in their uh, own language is exceptional, so we don't privilege that and think that we can learn from that. I think it does go back to what's the activity in the classroom. Just as a very small example, when I was, you know, teaching on the MBA and we had uh, international students in there, we'd set up discussions and say, um, now you've got a cultural resource in your group. Um, you need to test how this theory would work in this location. And it just changed it. Suddenly these groups of students who hadn't been able to find a way to contribute because others wouldn't let them in were the holders of knowledge that was valuable. And so it's around how do we how do we massify that? How do we spread that so that part of the learning process, part of the curriculum, is around that that gaining understanding of that knowledge is of benefit to all students. Um, and I don't think we've we've got that yet, but that would be that is what I think we have to work towards. Um, and so it is curriculum reform. It is learning activity reform it is assessment reform and we've got to work across all of those then we've got um, at least some some foundations for more inclusiveness um, for our students uh, I, I agree with Lindley but I'd like to add uh, uh, another piece um, so uh, there's an old Drucker kind of saying that culture trumps strategy and uh, the, the best reform in the world will fail unless you have people that have the right mindset uh, to deal with it. And I think, Lindley, uh, uh, in your teaching, uh, you were exactly the type of person that I'd want working at my university. You've got a global mindset and you see the benefit of the students sitting in that corner that, that you know, maybe from China and have all mm -hmm. kinds of ideas and experiences that they can bring into the classroom. Um, but you can only activate that if you have the right staff with the right mindset. So I think it begins from the hiring of the, and the type of staff that you, 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 you go after um, in, 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 you know, to teach and face students. So, yeah, mm. but a very important point. Beverly, we're running out of time, but you can have the last word. Oh, wouldn't we love that crystal ball when we're hiring? Um, Malaysia is a little bit unique because m local Malaysians are actually three cultures anyway. We have Malay Malay, we have Indian Malay, and we have Chinese Malay. 
Um, so as a country, it's multicultural, but of course we have students coming from all other different countries as well. Um, we, we, just another practical example, we use our student clubs. We leverage the capabilities of our student clubs to, to um, embrace this and to, to look at ways that their activities can be all inclusive of different cultures as well. But I'll say culture isn't the only point of difference. Um, there are lots of other areas that students are different and can be marginalised other than culture. And so when we're talking about inclusivity, we need to look at um, all of the different types of ways that students are different and how can we support them to, how can we include them in, in, their, in their, so they have a better life while they're at university. It's now 4.01. I've gone over these specified time by one minute, but it's been such a wonderful discussion. And I, I thank you for your time today. And I also thank you for your candor and your reflections on the context in which you're working. And from the, uh, from the, the, the comments, I think everybody's enjoyed the panel. So thank you to the three of you and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, thank Judith. You. Thank you. Thanks, Judith.